um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and you will find that on page 1140, 1140, in that uh, maroon-colored, wine-colored uh, Bible you have there on the table, 1140, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13. We're going to read that next. This one will be pretty familiar to many of you, and it is uh, uh, often referred to as the love chapter, often referred to in weddings, and uh, yet I think it's much more appropriate to do it here in church on Sunday. I mean, weddings are fine uh, for a love chapter from the Bible, but the reality is, is this is... This is much deeper than that. This goes a lot further. So we're going to hear these words, uh, I hope, in a fresh way today. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a, ch- a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May God add blessing to the hearing of his word. I used to think like a child, but now I think like a grown-up. Okay, grown-ups, if we're honest, is that true? (laughs) No. Once again, I refer to the conversation I had with these excellent young people that are part of our Shiloh family. And one of the things that I, I was pleased to tell them, and so your moms and dads are here so they can find out at least some of the things that I told you. And here's one of them. You're not an adult because you turn 18. You're not an adult because you have a high school diploma or even a college degree or even a good job. You're not an adult because you're married and you have children. These things do not make you an adult. Adulting is a lot harder and frankly, 
I'm relieved when I talk to, say, a 30-something-year-old person who says to me, this being an adult is a lot harder than I thought it would be. That is actually very comforting to me. As an almost 60-year-old man, I can tell you that it is comforting to realize that most of us men don't really come into our adulthood until we're, until we're in our mid-40s. So, And even then, there are certain things that they're set and probably won't change. I won't speak to women, but I'm sure that if you come to Jessica's if gathering, there will be some truth shared there in love about what it means to be an adult woman. So the truth is we've never really grown up. The whole idea of being grown up is kind of a weird and, and suspect term. But for us Christian believers, there is a concept that we need to embrace. And frankly, the church in the Western world, in particular in America, has done a pretty poor job for the last couple of generations of addressing this important part of being Christian. If you ask people what constitutes being a Christian, what it, what it is that makes you call yourself Christian, they will say that they grew up in a Christian home, they go to a Christian church of some kind or another, uh, some people will say, because I'm a Methodist, because I'm a Catholic, because I'm Anglican, because I'm Lutheran, and they'll have all sorts of religious answers. But most of them will tell you, if they're honest, that they believe in Jesus. And that's what they figure makes them a Christian. Now, if you press them, they would probably say they believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the one who did what only he could do for me, and that's why I can go to heaven when I die. That, unfortunately, is where most churches have left people. Left them with a knowledge of salvation and a potential for salvation that may or may not have been realized in the person. I can't get in your head and know for sure. I can tell you that regularly I am honored and uh, humbled to be at the bedside of people who are dying. And I can tell you that in that moment, I want to be able to know what they're going through and how much comfort they have in the face of this momentous transition from this existence to life in the spirit in the Lord's presence. But I can't know what's going on inside your head. So if you tell me you're a Christian, I'll take your word for it. But I wonder if your life bears testimony to that. You can rightly ask the same thing about me. Does his life bear witness to his faith in Christ? There's a word we use in religious language that is sanctification. It's not a word you'll use every day in your life, and it's not a common word among the young people you go to high school with and so forth, but you will hear it in church, and I want to define it for you because it's a word we need to use regularly in church, and so I'm going to tell you that it means growing up, like Paul described it in the passage we just read. Being a Christian is about growing up as a Christian. 
And it really doesn't have anything to do with how old you are in earthly years. It really doesn't matter whether you're 50 or 27, Kyle. It's a question of whether you're growing up spiritually. That's what sanctification is. It means that when I was a child, I thought like a child about God, about Christ, about my eternal life. And then there came a time when I thought more maturely about these things, and then that maturity resulted in a different way of living. Now we're getting close to what sanctification is. Now in our tradition, we refer to uh, means of grace. We talk about, for example, God's prevenient grace. Now, there's another $10 word we use in church, but prevenient grace means that God was looking for you even when you weren't looking for God. Prevenient grace means that you weren't feeling lost, but God knew you were lost, and so God was looking for you. God was pursuing you. And then one day... He got close enough behind you, I guess, that you heard the Lord behind you. And you turned around and said, who's that? And then you knew. This was one time you were being chased and it was great to get caught. That's prevenient grace. Then we have what we call justifying grace. Now, justifying grace, another one of those big church words. But here's a really simple explanation for you. If you were to die today and knock on heaven's door and the gatekeeper opened and said, the Lord needs to know why he should let you in. That's what the gatekeeper says as you enter this new existence after life on earth. And the answer to that question is your justification. You justify why you should be allowed into God's heaven. And there's only one answer. God's grace, that is unmerited favor, has granted you justification you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, but you got because you claimed Christ Jesus as your justification. In other words, you stand in God's presence because Christ made that possible for you. Your justification before God is Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty that you owe God on your behalf. And so you say, I don't deserve to be here, Lord, except that your son made that possible for me. And God says, good answer, come on in, justifying grace. And then we spend the rest of our days, much of our life, in the pursuit of sanctifying grace. God's grace, because it's unmerited favor, makes us better than we are by ourselves. In other words, sanctification won't happen unless it is done in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And it's like a 99 to 1 partnership. You have a role in it, but 99% of it is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why we call it grace. And so this sanctifying grace is the process of growing up and being a mature Christian. Now, we would refer to one more form of grace, but it probably won't happen for the mass of Did you hear that? 
I need a little grace for my tongue right now because it got all twisted up. We probably won't experience it in this life, but there is a grace that we would call perfecting grace. Meaning that God has every intention of perfecting us. Remember what Paul said? Everything I'm telling you is in this passage we just read. He said that we right now, we see things in an imperfect way, but one day we see it perfectly. Well, so our founder of our tradition, John Wesley, actually believed that some people could reach that Christian perfection in life. But he also said that most of us would get there after we moved from this life to the next, that we would continue really. But the idea of perfecting grace is what I want to talk about right now in order to get us where this theme of our passage and our our time together is meant to go, the gift of love. Wesley did not assume, and I do not assume, nor did Paul the Apostle assume, that in this life you would become perfect. You know what? I can't play the guitar and I probably never will at this point in my life. It's not going to, it's just not going to happen. I just shared with some lovely young uh, adults in our congregation that I can't do algebra if my life depended on it. But for some of them, it's just magic. They look at those formulas and it all makes sense to them. I'm never going to be perfect if it means finally understanding algebra, at least not now, but that's okay. But I do have every intention and every high ambition in me to attain perfect love. You see, the, par- the perfect love that Paul's talking about, the perfect love that we're talking about, this sanctification is the, is the part that's leading us toward it. It really doesn't mean that we're going to pray better than other people, that we're going to sing hymns better than other people. It, it doesn't mean that we're going to be more faithful to church than other people. None of that. It's not about any of that. What it's about is, is the condition of your heart and your soul. The question is, is your heart growing? Are you more in love with the Lord today than you were yesterday? Do you love the Lord more today than you did yesterday? And if so, how would anybody know? How do you know? Remember a few weeks ago, I told you when we were talking about the baptism of Jesus, that when God looks at Jesus and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then because of Jesus, you became daughters and sons of God. Therefore, when God looks at you, he sees a daughter or son with whom he is well pleased. You remember that? And I challenge you to look in the mirror the next time you go into the bathroom or the wardrobe or whatever and to see someone with whom the Lord is well pleased. And you know, he didn't see your imperfection. He doesn't see you the way you see you, the way you assume the world sees you. Rather, he sees your love. Now your love starts with faith. In faith, you put your eternal well-being in God's hands by accepting that only Christ can get you into God's house for all eternity. But then this relationship begins to grow, or should. You know, 
At the risk of going off script, I'm going to say that it would be a little bit like accepting a marriage proposal and going through the marriage ceremony and then continuing your separate lives but having rings on your finger. That's what most of us do in our relationship with God. We accept the bond. We accept the covenant like marriage, but then we never live the relationship. Now, those of you who are married or have been married for a long time, those of you who are grieving relationships that ended through death that are so precious that you can't let go, you understand how absurd that is. And yet many people do this every day in their relationship with Christ. They accept the proposal, the provenient grace. They accept the covenant, justifying grace. And then they reject the sanctification or the relational grace by going about their lives as though they have no other commitment to this person who saves them. And yet, one day, when we die, we expect to be released into heaven because we got the ring. <laughs> okay? That's what we're driving at here. The sign that you're in relationship with Christ is that you no longer see the world the same way anymore and the world doesn't see you the same way anymore. And the difference is love. The perfect love of Christ. It's, it's love. And it's not what we associate with love. You know, in, in a few weeks we're going to be, what, two weeks now, we're going to be talking about the, uh, Hallow not Halloween. I don't know, maybe that was a Freudian slip because that's about how absurd I think Valentine's Day has become, you know. It's like Halloween. Everybody wears masks and pretends, right? It isn't about pretty pink things, hearts and candies and flowers and all of that. That's not love. Love is... Love is... When your baby's born with a birth defect and you look at your wife and you say, we'll get through this, and 27 years later, you're still getting through it. See, that's love. Sorry, I gave you a personal example, but that's what I know about love. Love, love is about changing your expectations of others. Love is about changing your expectations of God. Love is about union of heart and mind. Love is sometimes, in the spiritual strengths of, of Christian love, it's easier to recognize by what it's not. So I want to tell you about another thing that came across my mind. I consider myself your spiritual practitioner. You go to your heart doctor for care for your heart. You go to your general practitioner for allergy medicine. You, you go to your dentist for dental care. You come to your pastor for spiritual care. That's how I look at my job. Now, I have discovered that there's another pandemic going on right now. Not that one that everybody talks about, but another one. I, I call it the uh, Van San virus. The Van San virus, I have defined uh, as a major problem for the body of Christ. Now, if we are a body, then our body can get sick. And the body of Christ has been suffering from what I call the Van San virus. I'd like to give you my diagnosis and treatment plan. I wrote this down this week. The virus responsible is called Vanity Insanity or Van San. It and its variants infect those who rigorously observe religious guidelines and who receive weekly doses of the sermon serums. 
Milder cases cause signs barely visible with the naked eye. They are attitudes of ingratitude and judgmentalism and intolerance. Minor symptoms are usually treatable with regular repentance and concentrated doses of humility. Without preventative measures, vanity and sanity spreads rapidly in the local church and often leads to isolation, arrogance, and violent speech. The ultimate cure for vanity and sanity is resurrection. In the meantime, sanctification is the best treatment plan. Signs of effective management are faith, hope, and love. Long-term benefits include nonviolent communication, grace, mercy, and cheer. Some local churches experience side effects such as harmony, unity of purpose, and numeric growth, deeper love for God emanating from heart, mind, and strength may cause community revival and upset the status quo, which often causes irritation. Therefore, prayer, Bible study, and communion prior to advanced sanctification treatment is recommended. So there's my diagnosis and prescription plan. Is this like something you've read recently, right? So as your spiritual practitioner, I'm here to say, tongue-in-cheek, but you know, like good satire, truth in love. There's an awful lot of Christians who aren't too terribly concerned about sanctification demonstrating exactly the opposite of what sanctification causes. If sanctification could be described in other terms, I might say it's a little bit like an uphill journey where as soon as you let off the gas, you roll backward. You gotta keep at this sanctification thing. You can't let up. You have to keep praying, studying scripture, communicating regularly with other believers so that you can urge each other on. You have to hold each other accountable in small group settings for sanctification or it just won't happen automatically. The beautiful thing is, is that you can tap on the gas and get a huge turbo boost, nitrous oxide boost, whatever you want to call it, from the Holy Spirit. Because that's how sanctification grace works. Now, what I really hope and pray for you today is that you would take away that sanctification is best witnessed in love. Love for God, love for yourself. And I'm not going to spend any time telling you what self-love isn't. If it's vanity and sanity, then you know you've got a problem. You just haven't decided what to do about it. It's love for your neighbor. Jesus gave this same prescription that I've shared with you now in my own peculiar way when he said the law of God can be summed up very simply in two terms. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul or strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If people believe that you are on a road of sanctification you're on a road of sanctification. If people don't believe that there's anything special about you because of your relationship with Christ, there probably isn't anything special about you because of your relationship with Christ. May I be so blunt. Trust me, 
I'm talking to the man in my mirror too when I say these things. Because we can all arrive at a certain point where we're pretty comfortable because the people that we most frequently associate with think so. But that isn't how it works. Churches like this one can get stuck simply because everybody has risen to a certain level and agreed that that's enough. And so there has to be some people in the body of Christ, in a church like this, in a family like ours, who are just always aggravating and irritating us forward so that we never settle for anything less than perfect love. And that, I believe, is what Wesley was driving at when he set this whole thing in motion we call the Methodist Church. I think that's enough to say about that. I'm going to pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now I pray you burn it on our hearts. And more than that, I pray, as Jessica did, that you would send your people changed. Force us, Lord, to awaken and recognize where we have become stuck where we are not working out our salvation and sanctification with your Spirit's help. Guide us, we pray, to lives, words, and deeds that clearly indicate to the world of the flesh that we're no longer the same as they are. Not because we're better, but because... You are in and through us the presence of Christ to them. Help us change the way we look at the world and change the way the world looks at us. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.